welcome everybody to Alam's AAPI in-house council panel, where we will be discussing the ins and outs of in-house council life. Thank you to the BBA for helping us coordinate this event, um, where we are honored to have four incredible panelists, all of whom have played a really important role in my own career development over the last 15 years. Um, you know, for those of you that I have not yet had the opportunity to meet, my name is Emily C. and I am counsel in the U.S. Litigation and Investigations Group at Decatur Pharmaceuticals. Prior to Decatur, I was litigation counsel at State Street Bank and Trust Company, which is a large custodial bank here in Boston. And before that, I was a litigator in the New York and the Boston offices of Nixon Peabody. Without further ado, I am pleased to introduce to you Austin So, Peggy Ho, Michelle Ree, and Sarah Kim. Now, many of you already know our four panelists, so I'm going to keep my introductions brief. Austin is the Senior Vice President and Chief Legal Officer and Secretary of Stonemore Inc., which is a leader in the U.S. death care industry. In the first few years that Austin was at Stonemore, he managed crisis after crisis. For example, he led the legal team and the company as a whole through a 95% loss of market cap, an SEC investigation, a securities class action, four CEOs, four CFOs, four COOs, four CHROs, and other turnover in senior management. And I'm not done. He also had to deal with a change of control by an activist shareholder and a complete turnover of the board. Prior to Stonemore, Austin was division general counsel and secretary and board member of Horaeus, a Fortune Global 500 manufacturing conglomerate with $21 billion in revenue. And prior to seeing the light and coming in-house, Austin practiced both litigation and transactional law at top law firms in New York. Peggy is general counsel at Commonwealth Financial Network. She is responsible for the firm's legal matters, risk management processes and controls, and AML functions. She guides the firm on strategic initiatives and regulatory issues, and has a leading role in the firm's ongoing focus on managing risk profile. Before Commonwealth, Peggy had 14 years under her belt at LPL Financial, where she most recently served as the Executive Vice President for Government Relations and was Chief of Staff to the Chief Legal Officer. She was previously a Corporate Associate at Ropes and Gray here in Boston. We are also joined by Michelle Ree. Michelle is the Deputy General Counsel of the Wealth and Investment Management Division of Wells Fargo. And she also heads the Legal Department's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee. Michelle has been with Wells for three years. And before that, she was at Bank of America Merrill Lynch for almost 14 years. And before coming in-house, she was a partner at Wilmer Hale. And last but not least, Sarah is the Deputy Treasurer and General Counsel for the Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer and Receiver General. Now, Sarah kind of wears two hats. As Deputy Treasurer, she has general oversight of the Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission. And as General Counsel, Sarah manages the team that provides support to the Treasury and its affiliated agencies on a variety of legal issues. She advises senior staff on strategic policy, procurement, employment, and litigation matters. Before joining the Treasury, Sarah was an Assistant Attorney General in the Fraud and Financial Crimes Division under Attorney General Martha Coakley. And before that, 
For 10 years, Sarah was a litigator at Bingham McCutcheon, which is now known as Morgan Lewis. So thank you all for joining us today. Why don't we kick it off with Peggy? Peggy, so you just joined Commonwealth. How is talking to business partners different now that you're in-house versus when you were at the firm talking to your clients? And have you ever had a situation where your business partners knew more about the law than you did? And what did you do there? Well, well, first, let me just say how honored I am to be on a panel with all of you. It's, uh, you know, I've spent much of my career looking up to, to, to many, so many of you, all of you actually. And um, so it's, it's great to be here um, with you talking about this stuff. Um, it, I'll take your second question first. I mean, you know, I would say every day these days, <laughs> <laughs> there are there are business partners who know more, not maybe not more about the laws, um, although that's definitely true sometimes. Um, uh, but definitely more about, especially since I'm new to my firm right now, um, they clearly know more about the business and how that business uh, operates and and what the uh, intricacies are and what's unique about the business, um, much more so than than I know. Um, and so being a new general counsel, I think that's um, exciting and challenging. Um, and I think the what I've been doing over the past two months since I joined Commonwealth is, is really focused on building relationships internally um, so that I can learn and, and have the benefit of, of my business partner's perspectives. Um, and uh, I, I will assure you that I've been doing a lot of phone of friends uh, to um, my colleagues across the industry because, you know, one benefit of getting older and, and growing gray hairs is that hopefully you've been able to build that network over time. And, uh, you know, I've, I've always been very, um, you know, focused on, you know, you, you help others and hope that others help you when, when, when you need that help. And so I've been um, uh, turning in lots of chip, chips lately uh, on that front. With respect to your first question, um, I haven't been at a law firm in quite some time now, but I will say that being in-house, it's significantly different in that you're you're part of the team, right? You're not just the lawyer. You're you're part of the executive team, and you're you're part of the group that's making business decisions. And I think that's just a a very different perspective. Um, they're looking to you as the lawyer, not just to provide that legal advice, but also um, you know, to, to kind of interpret that and translate that and, and, and help the business figure out how that applies um, to the issues at hand uh, with respect to your, your, your specific business. Um, so I, I feel like it's, a, it's a, just a different perspective and for me, a much more exciting perspective. Um, sometimes, you know, one of my mentors always said to me that being an attorney is really just being the purveyor of common sense. And I do find that um, when you're in-house, that is the role that the in-house counsel often plays. Everybody just kind of looks to you to just kind of bring that common sense. <laughs> and so I don't know, I'll, I'll stop talking and see if others have a response. Yeah, no, I think you brought up a really good point about being part of the team. Austin, I know at Stonemore, you wear many, many hats and you've had- yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Emily, I'm, I apologize for interrupting. Um, actually, I, I really don't. Um, I, I wanna make sure that I set the right background uh, for the audience, right? Sure, go ahead. You set up this panel with uh, four of your personal mentors. Yeah. And 
just so the audience knows, I think I've known you more than anyone else on the panel. Yep. And the first time you've ever invited me to a panel was two days ago as a last minute substitute. So when I embarrass you throughout the panel, I want the audience to know that I'm not mean. No, no, petty. never. Yeah, I'm just petty and vindictive. All right, so <laughs> to your question. Totally understand. Now, now speaking of, of team, um, and you know, Peggy mentioned the importance of an attorney as part of the team in-house and to the business. Um, have you had the opportunity to work with the team on more than just legal issues? Like, have you had an opportunity to work on business decisions? And do you think in those situations um, you had to utilize a different set of skills than, for example, when you're evaluating risk as a lawyer? Yeah, so, you know, you mentioned my unique situation, right? I think it's important to know where, you know, my perspective comes from, which which may not apply in all situations. So, you know, I, I worked at a company that for the first couple of years was falling apart at the seams. And, you know, there were times when I was the last person, literally the last person left in the C-suite. And so there were no other executives to make decisions. So I made I made business decisions all day long, but that's a unique situation. More broadly speaking, I would say that every good GC wants to have a full seat at the table, right? So every good GC is gonna to wanna to know that, that she has a full say and a full vote on all the key strategic you know, decisions and, and planning, right? So I think that's, that's one aspect of it. And just, I guess, you know, going broadly from GCs to all in-house lawyers, I think the mindset of the lawyer should be as a business per, business person per, first, right? So when you ask these questions, there's an assumption there that I think needs to be challenged, which is everything we ought to do, right, should be towards the go ultimate goal of the business. And we can talk all day long about, you know, there, there are competing theories about what stakeholders a corporation should, you know, ultimately serve, right? But set, set that aside, at the end of the day, to me, the business of the business is to generate revenue. Right. So everyone should be focused on that goal, which is to generate revenue. So when you're reviewing a legal contract, when you're advising a, an internal client, it should be towards that goal. Right. So that you're not you're not coming across as that pain in the ass lawyer who's always saying no, who's slowing down business, who's ruining that sale. Right. So. Um, so I, I think, you know, to your to go back to your question, I think the the answer is all decisions are business decisions, right? And I don't think it's a different skill set that a lawyer ought to have. I think it's a different mindset. Now, I think that's really important to remember. And I think you, you touched on a key buzzword, stakeholders. I'm not sure that's a term I ever used when I was at the firm and only learned it when I went in-house. Sarah, when we're talking about stakeholders in the in-house um, context, and we're talking about making business decisions with our teams, what does that mean? Who are the stakeholders and um, are they like law firm partners? Like, like, what are they? So like every good lawyer, I'll say the answer is it depends. <laughs> depends on the issue, the project, whatever you're tackling. <clears throat> um, you know, for business decisions that implicate just one particular unit, um, especially if it's a policy one for me, uh, I guess, or for the business unit, I guess I would be one of the stakeholders, like the legal department, um, they need to, they usually come to us and want our perspective and, 
you know, we'll give them a, an array of options that we see um, kind of give them the least amount of risk and they'll figure out what they want to do. But then depending on what the issue is, especially in a office like mine where um, the head of my office is an elected official. And if we're talking about a policy decision, um, she has the ultimate, she's the ultimate stakeholder. We would have to put together a plan uh, and get sign off from kind of the multiple, I guess, middle to more senior level staff. But ultimately at the end of the day, if she doesn't like our plan, uh, and it could be the best plan ever, but if she doesn't like it, then we're not doing it. Um, so that's so that's an answer with respect to kind of certain like different departments. But if you're talking about uh, we're working right now on a kind of agency-wide initiative, like that just stakeholders are not everybody, but it feels like almost everybody. Um, we're looking at um, a tool that the entire agency will be using and it's IT related. So, um, you know, we're doing due diligence. There's a legal piece to it. There's an IT piece to it, obviously. And then it's kind of newer technology and we have folks within the treasury as a state agency, we have folks who are maybe not as facile with technology. So we need to make sure that they're gonna embrace it. And then um, I think for this one, the treasurer is probably not as big of a stakeholder. Obviously she can kind of sink the whole idea if she doesn't like it, but I think she would go along with it. So I, again, I guess bottom line, my answer is it depends who your stakeholders are, depends on what you're working on. Um, so, and I think it can change too, depending on kind of how your project moves along. Sometimes you think it's gonna be one thing, but then as time progresses and you're looking at it and maybe the project gets bigger and you have to then add more stakeholders or more stakeholders um, kind of appear. So um, I guess the answer, again, it depends. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you've also hit on another topic that was new to me when I went in house, which is the idea of socializing a concept or socializing a project. That's not something we ever talked about when I was at the firm, but I think you've hit it right on the head where it means we have to go to all the different people who may have an impact um, and make sure that they feel like they have buy-in or that we get their um, opinion so that they can't yell at us later. <laughs> and one of the things that I have appreciated coming into state government is so there are certain things that we might implement as the treasury, but some of them may have ripple effects across state government um, that, you know, something to think about if we do one thing, how is that going to, does that affect the legislature? Is that going to impact like the executive branch agencies that we regularly deal with? So uh, I guess for you in the private sector, if you can imagine making a decision in it, impacts you know your co-competitors in a way <laughs> yeah absolutely so i think all four of you are managers of a very large legal teams i mean you're all leading large groups of attorneys and staff to kind of effectuate the goals of your group um michelle i was going to turn this question to you what are some ways to gauge whether your team is overworked. I mean, I think the last year and a half has been especially hard for many of us working from home, whether we have kids or we don't. 
Um, how did you motivate your team during this past year during the pandemic? So the, um, the concept of uh, having too much work is one that I, I've, I've thought a lot about. And uh, especially when it, we're in this environment, when we're working remotely and it's difficult for people to shut it off because their office is literally in their living room or their phone is pinging at them with messages that are coming in at different times and over the weekends and the lines start to blur. So at first I thought this was a temporary thing. I thought it was gonna be two weeks and then I thought it was gonna be two months. And it, I never thought that it was gonna be as long as it has been. But one of the best things I did in retrospect is that about uh, two months into the pandemic, I started um, just calling people. I would just call people throughout my organization. I have um, 70 people who report to me and it didn't matter what level they were. And we would set up one-on-ones and I would ask them how things were going, but I wouldn't ask them, do you have too much work? Are you too busy? Are you busy, et cetera? I didn't wanna make them feel as if they had to respond that they were. Instead, what I was trying to get engaged was their level of stress. Mm -hmm. And there were some very, very stressed people. And as you can imagine, they're people who have stresses typically of taking care of additional family members, whether they be people who are infirm or very young or whatever the situation is. And they did not feel as if they had any kind of license to shut it off. And so here's their boss calling or their boss's boss and asking how they're doing. And one woman was she just broke down in tears when she was talking to me and asked her what's going on. And it was fairly on in the pandemic and she was just having a hard time juggling uh, school at home. So trying to get her young child to map out their day and be autonomous enough to actually pay attention while she's trying to work five feet away on a screen of her own. And so what I told her was just uh, do whatever you have to do. Like work will always be there, but your life has needs you, like your children need you. So just that freedom, which she would never have thought to ask for. She's a, she was a very junior attorney on the team. Uh, that was uh, something that inspired a lot of loyalty, I think, afterwards. And she, she and I have really had some great conversations after that. She's three levels down from me. So it's not like we would have any occasion to speak on a one-on-one -on -one basis on a routine, but just reaching out in a human way as a manager and not talking about a task. That was really good advice I got when I first became a manager after about a year. Someone said, you know, you're really... You're a strong person, you're really good, you're very organized, but you can't manage tasks. You're managing people. So treat them like people. Yeah, I think um, oftentimes people assume that good attorneys will make good managers and that that is not true. Um, so I think your team, especially Michelle, is very lucky to have you. Now I know you also had a silver lining to the pandemic. Do you wanna share that with our audience? Oh my, uh, I, I forget which one it was, but I'm assuming it's either the wildlife real journal. One. <laughs> the real one. <laughs> the real one? I'm sorry. No, the, you're meal, the meal, the, the, the breakfast, dinner with your family. Oh, yes. Yeah. So there, there's so many things that actually I found that were silver linings about the pandemic. And for me, I have two kids. I've been working over 20 years. And from the day that they were born, uh, except for the time that I was actually on maternity leave, I didn't get to see them at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. 
So I would either miss breakfast or I would miss dinner every day for 20 years. This was the first time in my adult, then my uh, son, who's away at college, he was home for a period of time. I actually got to see them at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day. And that was really special. And I, I had a great time, even though now my 18 year old child doesn't speak to me again because she's a girl and she's you know, got her own life and doesn't want to have anything to do with me. But we did spend this week where, <laughs> one week out of the whole year, where we would see each other in the morning and talk and then we would see each other at the end of the day and talk and it was great. Oh, that's really nice. Um, does anybody else have any pandemic silver linings that they want to share? I mean, I think I think similar to, to Michelle, I mean, I think it is the, um, you know, the, the time with family, the, the, um, the fact that I mean, prior to the pandemic, I was probably traveling two weeks out of every month. And, and you don't realize, I think what I've kind of come to understand is you, as, as the travel kept increasing, increasing, you don't realize it's happening to you. You're like a, the frog that's in the pot and it slowly gets boiled and you don't realize that you're boiling alive. Um, and so it, it took the pandemic for me to just kind of, you know, you stop that travel and you're like, wait a second, you know, my life is so much better now. And, uh, and so, so that's, that's been a blessing. So this, this is not a pandemic story, but, um, you know, I, I asked each of the panelists beforehand to tell one embarrassing story about Emily before we conclude. I don't, I don't have an embarrassing story, but I remember, and this is about management, right? That's what you asked Michelle about. Um, so I've always viewed myself as this very nice, easygoing kind of guy. And I remember when I worked with Emily about, okay, so she's not, she's <laughs> just kidding. sideways not, but when we, when we worked together on this harrowing project, maybe 15 plus years ago, um, I was surprised by a comment Emily made that when I would leave the office at like three, four in the morning and send out like, you know, a barrage of emails with tasks for, you know, the, the attorneys and staff that are coming in in the morning to start on. I thought I was being efficient. So when I'm sleeping, when you get in, these are the things you ought to be doing. And I would send off a bunch of different emails. And she said, you know, you're stressing people out because first thing they see when they wake up is like eight emails from you. And I, I've carried that to this day. And I'm very mindful about stressing people on my team out with little habits like that. So that's, that's a lesson that I've learned from you, which I hate admitting, but that's it's something that's carried me well, I think for 15 years. Do you think Austin, um, now that you've been managing your team from the pandemic um, experience, you'll be changing the way you manage them going forward when everybody comes back to the office? Um, I, I, think, I think the honest answer to that is, is, is I don't know yet. Um, you know, we, I, I was lucky because the team that I that I have now was was built from the ground up, right? right so right. we have a very very close personal relationship, and that's the way I like it. And people have cycled through, and you know when we have when we used to have holiday, holiday get-togethers at my at my house, we would invite all the families over, and the former members of my team also still joined. So you know I consider this a family, whether you're still with us or, or not. Um, I think that has continued through the, through the pandemic and that's made it easier, right? So, um, you know, I don't have as large of a team as Michelle, so it's been easier, especially with a close-knit team, it's been easier to sort of gauge their stress level. I don't know how things will change, you know, once we return back to normal. Yeah, but it sounds like the key is being sensitive to 
um, your team and their needs outside of just what has to get done on the to-do list for today. And so I think that's really good advice going forward for all of us to remember as we're managing teams or working with our fellow coworkers. So switching a little bit, Peggy, um, you know, one thing that I really came to understand when I went from the firm in-house is what it means to be a cost center. And so, you know, when you're billing thousands of hours at the firm and you're making the partners tons of money, you know, you're, you're seen in one very different light than when you're in-house on a legal team that all of a sudden is a cost center. And especially I know in the financial services industry, there is an increasing pressure to do more with less. Um, so two questions for you. One, is it better to have your own budget line item or is it better to be mushed into the larger org's budget? And two, how do you justify legal as a cost center to your business stakeholders? Well, on the, on the first question, I guess, um, I don't know. I, I, I guess I never thought about not having my own budget and my own budget line. Um, and um, I'd be curious if anybody has their budget mushed into, oh, you do, really? <laughs> wow. My okay. question. This is my question. Is, holy cow, really? Yes. yes. Okay. And I go back and forth in my mind on whether or not I want to have my own budget line item or if I'm happy. Well, I, I mean, I suppose budget. I suppose if you're mushed in, then maybe you can hide a little more and, and you don't have the scrutiny. Um, but then on the flip side, I would like to have my own transparency. Um, I'm, I'm big on data. I'm big on data and transparency. And I think the only way you can um, really demonstrate value and demonstrate uh, what you're doing and demonstrate your results is if you have the right data that you can report on. Um, and you can then, you know, at the end of the year, show how you performed versus budget and, and all of that. Um, I think it's also important, you know, not just from a financial perspective, but to the extent that you can have proper reporting that shows, um, that demonstrates all of the incredible work that your team is doing. Um, you know, sometimes that's easier than, than others. You know, some parts of the law is a little more widget making than others, right? I mean, you know, in the financial services industry, you know, you'll have arbitrations or you'll have customer complaints and you can kind of show how much work is, is being done. Um, but oftentimes I think it's a challenge in, in legal departments because you're, you're trying to prove a negative, right? You're trying to show the value, the value that my team brought is that the company didn't have to pay out as much money and, and how do you show that? Um, so I guess, I guess my high level response is, I believe in transparency, so I would want my own budget. Um, I believe in, in good data and good reporting, and I think that's important. But ultimately, um, I think your question around how you justify legal, and I think I keep going back to this, but, but relationship building is so important and making sure that the business um, understands the value that, that your team is bringing and appreciates the, the counsel and the um, the fact that when you're sitting at the table with the business that you're you're helping make these important business decisions. And so I think it's important to, to establish that uh, as, as table stakes. And then you have the data and the underlying transparency to support that. But yeah, Sarah, I'd love to hear what you do. <laughs> She's staying silent. <laughs> 
after a year and a half, I still have trouble with this stuff. Um, I don't know, I'm torn. Yeah, so this is my question because I'm very curious on the one hand, and this kind of pertains a little bit to the, maybe the DE&I questions that come later in this program, but to the extent that I don't have my own budget, I feel it the most when it comes to hiring and um, compensating folks on my team, because in a way, if you have your own budget, you control your own destiny in terms of kind of what you can do for your folks. Um, so, but then at the same time, since I'm just part of the larger like administration budget, you know, a lot of things that, you know, like dues and kind of things that you know, we are very cost conscious within the agency as we are, because we're very cognizant of the fact that we're spending taxpayer dollars. So, but to the extent that I have folks who maybe want to go to a BBA event that costs money, you know, like if I had my own budget, I would have no problem just saying, sure, you can go. And then, but at, and at the same time, like I would be more cautious of, okay, well, does that mean that so-and-so doesn't maybe gets less of a bump next year, or, you know, um, maybe that's not the best example. But then if as some part of the larger administration budget then, or administrative budget, I, those costs kind of are in there and get through. And nobody really is like, well, why are you sending, you know, five people to the BBA event? Um, so. Maybe the PBA can throw you guys some extra free memberships <laughs> to anybody. No, no, we can't take free gifts. Oh, no, no, no. Sorry, I was not in, implying that you should commit fraud. Um, Michelle, what about you? Do you have your own budget within the larger Wells Fargo legal department, or are you kind of mushed in the way Sarah's mushed in? No, that's very clearly a legal department budget, and then um, we have what we call divisions. So I have a wealth and investment management legal division budget. Um, but I would say that the, nobody cares about how much we spend on the internal costs other than personnel. What they really care about is our outside council budget. And so that's where we spend a lot of time trying to make sure that we are uh, picking law firms judiciously, figuring out what the most effective and efficient way is to match internal council use versus external council use. And, uh, and you know, I'll try to mitigate the potential conflicts involved in, in using law firms. Yeah, I think um, that's actually a really good segue into our discussion about diversity inclusion and how we can all leverage our outside counsel spend to effectuate change in the legal industry. Austin, you have been talking about this ever since you went in-house about how it's important to make sure we're paying attention to who is getting our matters, who is staff on the teams. Do you want to talk a little bit about your approach to diversifying the legal field through your outside counsel spend? You know, budget. yeah, I, I think I think from you know now that I'm 87 years old, you know my 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 views have uh, I've got the zoom filter on, so you can't you can't tell. Um, but you know my views have have I think evolved and fine tuned um, over the years. But yeah, look, di diversity is is important, and I think representation is important. I think you know I'm not I I don't work in a company that's large enough to start imposing things like specific percentage thresholds or, or impose the you know, Mansfield rule or, or whatever. I think it's a lot more of a personal touch, but mm -hmm. 
you know, you look at, you know, why does diversity matter? I think the business case has already been talked about ad nauseum. There's clearly a benefit when you have different perspectives in the room. Um, and I realized personally how much representation matters when I joined this company because, you know, not only was I the first lawyer for the company, all right, I had to build up this legal department. I was the, I was the first and only, still the only Asian American executive around, right? So at, at the first board meeting, um, one of the co-founders of the company who's since been booted, one of the co-founders of the company and a board member, I mean, he used the word Oriental, right? As the, at the first, at the first board meeting, right? And uh, you, you, you hear, and then during the current coronavirus epidemic, you, you know, of course, there were lots of questionable things, even amongst, you know, educated board members and executives. So, um, and, and because of, of my presence, for example, you know, the company put out a statement during the whole anti-Asian violence, right, trend that was, uh, that was very, very troubling. Um, uh, but, so I think representation for that reason is important. But, you know, how do you sort of, how do you get the representation without, um, you know, enforcing specific percentage percentages? You know, that's, that's tricky. You know, what I tend to do is, so we're, we're, we're not a big company, but we're actually a large consumer of legal services. So we're, you know, top five, 10 client of a couple of major law firms. We use local law firms around the country. For law firms where we have a lot of concentrated work, that's easy, right? It's only a couple of law firms. For other law firms, when I, when I seek out, you know, somebody in Alabama or, or you know, California, what I tend to do is I, I, in my career, I've never found any particular lawyer that I absolutely need, right? I think lawyers, outside lawyers, no offense to anyone in, in attendance. I don't mean you, I mean those not, not listening. Um, but lawyers tend to be fungible in my mind. So I don't need any particular individual. What I'm looking for is, okay, who, who has the right skill set? And then I figure out which firms, right, fit, which individual lawyers at the firms fit. And then I tend to seek out someone within my personal network that can introduce me to that person. So that individual can get um, relationship credit. Now, I do have a very diverse network um, and diverse lawyers tend to benefit. But you know, for me, it's not just about diversity for diversity's sake either, right? A diver diversity can cut across different ways. So what do I mean by that? It, you know, I have a white male Australian friend who's the first to go to college and law school, right? I've, I've helped him along. And he's a white male, but is he no less deserving of some business and, and, a, and, a, and a shot than someone who is Asian American who's third generation lawyer, right? So, you know, I think these questions can get can get a little bit uh, more complex, but as a general rule, uh, that's that's been my approach. It's a lot more personal, and that's been important to me because I built this legal department. When I came in, it was entirely outsourced to a, a law firm. So you can imagine how big our legal budget was when a law firm dictates both supply and demand, right? Kind of like doctors, here's what you need and I'm gonna provide it. So our spend was outsized. And when our company was doing well at 20 bucks a, a share, no one really cared about the spend. When I fired that law firm, this was a huge monumental task. That's like, it was a law firm, I was outsourced legal department of maybe 30 plus lawyers with 25 years of institutional knowledge. And I sent them packing overnight. All that institutional knowledge went out the door. And so when I, when I did that, I took on a big risk, which means anytime a law firm screws up, that's on me. So any lawyer I hired in the first couple of years, 
it had to be through someone that I absolutely trusted with my career because it really was on the line, right? So that, that's why I tend to make this very personal. I need somebody at the firm, even if they're not the billing attorney, I need somebody at the firm that's going to make sure that I get top client service, make sure that they're going to crack the whip. If I question a bill, I don't want any, you know, I don't want any pushback, right? And replace that lawyer, done. So it's been very personal. So it's been frankly easier for me than say someone else in, in well, the three panelists here, they have larger, I think, teams and, and stakeholders to deal with. So it's, that's probably more of a challenge than what I had. But I think going back to what you said about how representation matters, I, I think that's, that's key, right? I mean, the fact that we are sitting, um, the, the fact that we are leading the legal departments where we are, um, it matters, right? Because, because as you said, Austin, you know, your network is more diverse than, than that white guy's network. And so by virtue of the fact that we four are in charge, that it just naturally leads to the fact that our um, consumption of outside counsel, we are choosing people who are more diverse. I mean, I, I actually just, in my two months here, I just kind of noticed like, huh, every outside counsel I've chosen, it, it, it's a woman. They're, they're all women for one thing, right? Uh, and, and, and some of them are, are, are not white. And, and, and so, and it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily even conscious, but it's just the fact that who I am and who I have built into my network. So it goes back to uh, representation matters and, and we need more diversity at the top, period, right? Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, I, I'm, I'm mindful, I would say two things, you know, one, I agree with you completely, representation does matter. And, you know, I'm mindful of my own biases when I hire, right? If, if I, if I sort of, you know, mindlessly started hiring people, you know, submitting to my unconscious, I would have all handsome Asian American male attorneys working, right? Exactly. Um, you know, people that look like me. Gorgeous, gorgeous, handsome. <laughs> I, mean, I would also say that, you know, I, what I don't like is when, when diversity efforts tend to sound like no white males. I think that is not productive, right? Because uh, like I said, there are plenty of white males that probably also need uh, a shot um, as, much as, uh, as much as groups, people from other groups. But I think the key, which you guys have both identified is that we are at least asking the question. Um, and I don't know how often the question was even asked, say 10, 15, 20 years ago. Um, like for example, we had two firms, I won't name them, but we had two firms bidding for this large bankruptcy work. And I said to the firms, I want to see a diverse team. One firm had a very diverse team, made sure that all of those diverse attorneys were on the pitch call, were you know included in the pitch materials, guaranteed the actual work from the work if they got it, and one firm did not. And guess who won? It was the firm that was able to provide a diverse team and also show that they had the expertise we needed in order to feel comfortable with engaging that firm. So I think you know you all have really provided some good insight in terms of just even asking the question is, is a good step. You know, a lot of us um, in-house wanna do the good work of diversity and equity and inclusion. And often that means we are essentially taking on a second job. Um, it's, it's this concept of double work. So our, not all of them, but some of our white male colleagues do not have to do this. Um, 
And it's not that we don't want to, because we want to, we definitely think it's important, but it is a lot of work on top of what is already our day job. So, you know, Sarah, you've been involved in these types of initiatives throughout your entire career, um, both when you were at the firm and then outside of the firm. How do you balance that sense of double work? And how do you set boundaries so that you as the woman of color and sometimes the only woman of color are not always the one having to carry all of the water? Um, you say no. <laughs> um, So for me, I made the decision a long time ago that I wasn't going to do that. I wasn't gonna, I would participate and talk, kind of advocate from behind the scenes or participate as needed, but I wasn't gonna take the lead on these things, or these initiatives. I am supportive of them, believe me, um, but, for me, I didn't want to be pigeonholed. I, 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 I was a, yeah, I didn't want to be pigeonholed. I was, I felt like I had enough of my own, like challenges of my own in terms of figuring out work and figuring out how to survive at the firm. And then, um, so I just, I chose not to. Um, you know, it's not, it wasn't something that was easy. Um, to do because I felt like it was a responsibility cut to everyone's point on what we've talked about before representation matters and having your voice heard and um, you know I've had people kind of say to me well you know if not you then you know who who else is going to articulate these things and like there are plenty of, this is like diversity is an issue for all of us not just women not just people of color not just our LGBT um uh colleagues so that is why i just chose to say no and kind of even currently um at the treasury i'm not a, a lead on our de and i efforts um we i each of our departments have to create our own de and i plan and it's something that i have taken the lead on um and I'm happy to do that. And I'm happy to have conversations with folks uh, in different departments about different ideas. But um, again, kind of chosen not to kind of be like, kind of lead that effort. I, um, I took the opposite path, uh, obviously. This is my third go around in league being a legal department's diversity and equity inclusion council. I did it twice at my former job in-house. So both times in large organizations. And the reason why I do want to suggest that people consider it, I, I hear you, Sarah. Um, I would say that my first real managerial responsibility of a team broader than the three people who directly reported to me at the time in one of my first gigs was when I got to manage the entire diversity council at Bank of America. And that was overnight, something like 35 people on the council. And I really took it seriously. I and mean, even now people are probably like, oh yeah, that woman, <laughs> she just you know, came in and just organized everything in a completely different way. It was a chance for me to manage something that meant something to me. And I, the, the diversity issue was a tough nut to crack. This was now 10 years, over 10 years ago. And it was hard because of um, 
not only the fact that you have to deal with multiple constituencies, but people are uncomfortable talking about diversity and inclusion. There's, uh, there are a lot of ways in which people get together and celebrate um, specific events without actually talking about the harder issues. And I was really pushing to talk about the harder issues. So I, I personally have really enjoyed doing it. And um, I just encourage people to consider using those kinds of, if you're in an in-house department and you're especially in one that's big, using it as an opportunity to not only get to know other people, but to lead. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Michelle. I mean, for me at State Street, you know, that was how I got to know our GC. It was because I was in meetings with him on DE&I efforts. But to Sarah's point, I also wanted to make it very clear to him that I am not just there for DE&I. I'm also a seasoned litigator and I am there to do my job as a litigator for the company. And so I think it's, it's a balance of both, you know, doing what's important to you, but also drawing boundaries to make sure that you're just not seen as the, the token person who's always gonna be the DE&I person. Um, so I think with that, we're gonna start to open it up to questions. Uh, we already do have one question. Um, and maybe Austin, this is a good one for you since you've had both litigation and transaction work under your belt. So the question is, do you recommend starting a legal career with litigation or transaction work? What would you say, having done both? Uh, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I guess, I guess the question is recommend in the context of maybe one day going in house. I suppose that's that's implied in the question. It's certainly a lot easier to go in house if you're a transactional attorney. Um, there are certain, there are definitely fewer opportunities for litigators. It doesn't mean they don't exist. Um, you know, for me, I guess one advice that I could give is something that was given to me by probably one of the most successful lawyers. He happens to be Asian American, but probably one of the most successful lawyers in the country, hands down, who said, don't be afraid to ruin your resume. And I tried my damnedest to ruin my resume probably the first half of my career, right? So I, I started off as a transactional lawyer at Cravath, uh, ended up as a litigator at Aiken Gump, and in between tried, uh, you know, tried my hand at, at starting my own law firm. All right, so I did a lot of different crazy things that people said, you're never going to be able to recover from it. And it was tough, right? When I tried to, to come back to the big firm life, not as a transaction lawyer, but as a litigator, recruiters wouldn't touch me. So it was, it was certainly tough. But every time I've made a switch, you know, when I switched from transactional to my own firm, to litigation, from small firm to big firm, and then in-house, every step of the way, I was happier in, 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 in the law. So I feel like I was inching towards um, inching towards a place in the law where I really found fulfillment, which is going in-house. That's where I sort of a round peg, you know, found a round hole. Everything came clicked into place and my career really took off from there. So I would say, you know, go with whatever you think you enjoy more, whether it's transactional or, or litigation without worrying about, you know, whether it's going to be better for your resume in the long run. I would say do something that you enjoy, do it well. And if you want to make a change and take some risks and take some chances, do it. And I happen to be in the death care business, but I used to say this even before I joined the death care business. Think about your deathbed and work backwards, right? You're not going to regret. I mean, you know, so, you know, what are you going to regret when you're dying? right? You're going to regret the risks that you did not take, right? Not the other way around. Good advice. Michelle, were you a litigator prior to going in-house? 
No, I just act like one. People think I'm from New York and then I'm a litigator. <laughs> Neither is true. <laughs> but I, when you said, is it better to be a litigator or a corporate attorney starting out? I said, yes. <laughs> okay, I was a litigator before right. I went in house. Yeah, no, I don't think there are as many litigation roles, but I know a lot of recovering litigators who are now in-house in more corporate type roles. So it's not that you can't switch over to the other side if you start out as a litigator. Don't be dissing on litigators, okay? Well, I am a litigator. <laughs> well, and, 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 and I, think, I, think, I think the point that Austin was making is, is really key. It's, it's, you don't have to think of yourself as being pigeonholed. So if you're, if you're at the for those of you out there who are at the beginning of your career, the fact that you start your career as a transactional attorney or as a litigator doesn't mean that that's what you're doing for the rest of your life. I mean, so I, I started as a transactional lawyer um, and through the course of my career, um, I mean, there was a significant chunk of time where I wasn't even practicing law. I mean, I was, I was basically the, you know, I was, I was management, I was, I was expensive overhead for, for a while. Um, and, and, you know, to the point where, you know, you should take chances. Um, I was given an opportunity to, to build a government relations team and to learn all about um, lobbying Congress in, in Washington, D.C. and all of that. And that's something that I never would have expected that I'd be doing. And it was also, honestly the, the most fun I've had in my career. Um, and so my advice is, you know, I think to Austin's point, do what's fun, do what you enjoy and, and don't be worried about what's right, I guess. Yeah. And so long as you build your basic kind of toolbox of skills, it, those are translatable into whatever you want to do. Yeah, I think that's right. Are there any other questions from the audience? If you have a question, you can enter it into the chat box. Um, Let's see, we have another one. Is there any general advice for first generation Asian lawyers who immigrated to the US after college from their home country? Good for you. I, I you know, I'm just so feel like impressed and um, with folks who kind of take that step and um, yeah, so good for you. And um, don't just, don't, don't be intimidated about anything. Um, just yeah, embrace the career, embrace the um, legal community here in Boston. Uh, we'll embrace you back. Um, I have to say, so my parents immigrated here and to this day, they still keep talking about, oh, I got to practice my English. And, but like, you just can't let that, things like that get in the way of um, your being the best lawyer you can be. I mean, there's, I, I, their stories, I can't remember all of them, of folks who've immigrated here to the United States and become great lawyers. And that is, that is definitely a possibility. You know, I think if you're if you're a if you immigrated from after college, you probably face the same kind of issues that Asian Americans face, but uh, perhaps a little more exaggerated. So what I mean by that is just the the cultural um, differences in learning how to accept a compliment, for example, taking credit, being overly deferential, 
these things don't translate well in the in the West versus versus Asia, right? And a lot of Americans who are of Asian descent, they carry that from prior generations, right? So I think that is something that you need to focus very much on, right? So when you're acting overly deferential, right, that can come across as being meek or unsure of the answer, lack of confidence. And, you know, the inability to take a compliment when somebody says, hey, you're fantastic, your answer is thank you, right? Not going on and about, well, no, Emily really did a lot of the work. It's not me, I'm, I'm nobody. That doesn't translate well, right? So you don't have to go to my extreme. I take credit for the internet, right? But you, you need to find some place, some place in the, in the middle. And that's something I think you need to focus on. And I would suggest joining um, your local affinity bar association. So, you know, for example, Alum has been a great home to many of us. It is how we built our networks um, here in Boston and, and outside of Boston nationally through our national affiliate, NAPABA. So, um, you know, I think it's definitely not unchallenging, but there are resources and networks here to, to help you manage through that. Um, so we have another question to Sarah's point about building a toolbox of skills. What is a legal or other skill you recommend developing at a law firm that will be helpful as an in-house attorney? I'm going to jump right in with something because um, I do think that one of the reasons why, because I am not the smartest attorney. I don't work the hardest. I am not, uh, I don't know, my work product is not the best, uh, but I know the business. And when I'm in a meeting, uh, recently my boss, who's the general counsel, asked my client, you know, how's she doing? And he said, she adds a lot of value. Do you know? And he said, do you know the very first meeting where I met her, I got this job in July of 2020, that she asked a question that was not legal in nature. And I had a hard time. If I didn't know, if I walked into that room and I didn't know that she was the lawyer, I would never have guessed that she was the lawyer. And that was a really high compliment coming from him. And I've carried that with me and used that as advice. There are too many times I've interviewed candidates who are from law firms that want to come in-house. And when I ask them, why do you want to work here? It takes two or three questions. And I realize they have no idea what Wells Fargo does. They have no idea what the business is. They have no idea, to Austin's point earlier, how we make money. That's easy to do. Read the Wall Street Journal and figure out what the industry is. Figure out why you would want to work for a company. Um, because you understand their business. Yeah, I think I would add to that, learn how to talk to non-lawyers and learn how to take very complicated concepts and distill it down into three bullet points. Because I think one of the things that we all find in-house is we do not have time to read a detailed 20-page memo. We have time to read a three bullet point email. So very early on in your career, you should start developing that skill because for me, it did not come naturally. For me, I wanted to write every single fact and every single detail, and nobody has time to read that in-house. So learn how to distill complicated concepts into very easy to read, digestible um, communication. Critical thinking and, and kind of go to the punchline, explain the why. You know, I, um, I've probably been rejected from more jobs than the entire panel has ever you know, applied for. So I think I've got a lot of useful sort of on the, on the ground advice. And I know we're running out of time, but you know, this is a point that Peggy made. Law firms are not teams. You know, they, they say, oh, we're a great team. We work collaboratively, but it's not true. They're just a little co collections of little fiefdoms. So when you go, when you go in house, you're working at a company 
and you're working for a large team, right? And that is a completely different set of, of things that you need to consider, right? And when I talk to, to younger lawyers um, who mistakenly seek my advice, you know, the things to watch out for when you go in house, power, politics, and, and presence, right? And I'm just gonna work on the presence piece, which is you look at these panelists that are speaking right now, right? Peggy, Michelle, Sarah, and you look at the way they carry themselves, even on Zoom, you can feel their presence, right? They, they have credibility. When they say something, it sounds right. And it sounds very commanding. That is something that I think you, you need to work on uh, when, you, when you go in-house. And so, don't be afraid to be wrong. I think that's great. Yeah. And admit when you are. Yeah. It's and, okay. Right. And figure out what the alternative is, like the other strategy. So um, I guess that would be kind of round out my answer. So before we hang up, I have to say, I didn't make this disclaimer early on that everything that I've said here is on my own behalf and not on behalf of the Office of the State Treasurer and Receiver General and definitely not, uh, should not be attributed to the treasurer herself. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Um, and if anybody else needs to give a similar disclaimer, you can just consider it for everybody here. Um, so unfortunately, we have run out of time. This has been such a wonderful discussion. I would really like to thank Peggy, Sarah, Austin, and Michelle for your time today. I know that um, all of us have learned so much from your words of wisdom. And thank you again to the BBA and um, to Alam for putting this panel on. Hopefully, the next time we can be in person, Austin, you'll have to fly up to Boston. Um, and I hope everybody stays well. Thank you. Right. And, and great job, Emily. Oh, you're yeah, welcome. Well done, Emily. <laughs> All right, everybody have a great night. Bye-bye.